I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we will be today, verses 1 through 4. The title of the message is Genuine Gospel Ministry, Bold and Obedient. Genuine Gospel Ministry, Bold and Obedient. But before we read the passage, I just want to uh, pause and let's pray and ask God to bless our time in His Word today. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for blessing us with your presence. Uh, Father, we thank you for blessing us with your word. Uh, Father, we thank you for Jesus who rescues us from our sin and, uh, and, and makes us righteous in your sight. Uh, Father, we, uh, we thank you for your spirit who works in us and helps us to grow in our relationship with you. Uh, Father, we know that your word is a central part of that. And so we want to come to your word uh, with... Um, with great um, anticipation for how you will teach us and, and grow us, but also with great respect, realizing that this is your word. Uh, Father, uh, would you just uh, watch over this time, uh, work, uh, work in us and through us, and Father, we just pray that you would receive the glory and the honor and praise that is due your name as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we'll go ahead and read, and so you follow along in your copy of God's word. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Can you imagine a scenario where someone wants to discredit another person's belief or ideology or worldview, but instead of attacking the belief system of that person, they instead attack the person? Uh, they attack the person instead of the person's beliefs or message. One obvious example of this is in politics, and it's, it's all around us. Now, let's say there are a group of people who are being persuaded by a political candidate to think a certain way about an issue. Well, then the opposing candidate has two options to change the view of the people. Either the opposing candidate is going to... Uh, try to persuade them that the, the beliefs, the, the, the worldview, the, the policies of the candidate they're following are wrong, or the opposing candidate has to persuade them that the candidate himself or herself is a fraud, that they, they can't trust that person. In other words, the opposing candidate either attacks the, the platform, the beliefs uh, of the the candidate or the opposing candidate attacks the person. And we see that all, all the time around us. Well, Paul and his companions and the Thessalonian believers found themselves in kind of a similar situation. The issue, though, wasn't necessarily politics in the, in the sense that we're talking about, but the issue was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul found out probably from Timothy, who had gone to check on the Thessalonians and then came back and reported back to Paul, Paul had found out through Timothy that there were people in Thessalonica who were causing trouble for the believers. And these persecutors, though, weren't focusing their attacks 
as much on the message that Paul and Silvanus and Timothy had preached to the Thessalonians. Uh, instead, they were focusing their attacks on Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Uh, they were calling into question the character um, of, of these men who had brought the gospel to Thessalonica. But here's the thing. An attack on the messenger of the gospel is an attack on the gospel itself. So Paul feels the need in this letter to defend himself against the attacks that were coming from those who were saying that he and Silvanus and Timothy were frauds. Paul loved the Thessalonian believers and he didn't want them to shrink away from the gospel by believing the lies that were being proclaimed and spread by his opposers, if you will, uh, lies about him and his companions. So in chapter 2, Paul shifts from focusing on the manner in which the Thessalonians received the gospel to the manner in which he preached the gospel to them. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, Paul gave evidence of their election by God. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Paul gives evidence that he is not a fraud. Or we could say it this way. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, Paul uh, was focusing on the genuineness of the salvation of the Thessalonians through their belief in the gospel. Here in chapter 2, verses 1, 1 through 12, Paul is focusing on the genuineness of his gospel ministry to the Thessalonians. If we look at really this, this section, verses 1 through 12, which is one main section of this letter, uh, we see this overarching theme. Paul here is defending himself and his companions against the accusations of those in Thessalonica who are seeking to persuade the believers that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were frauds. That's his objective in verses 1 through 12. And we're going to look at this defense that he gives in just a moment. But before we do, I want to I warn you, I think, of, of two temptations uh, when it comes to a passage like this. The first temptation is this. It's to read over this as something that would have been important for the Thessalonians, but not really that important for us. We might think, well, the Thessalonians needed to hear this because they were being told that Paul was a fraud, but I don't think that. And so I don't really need to pay much attention to this passage. The other temptation is to read over this quickly as something that's applicable um, only maybe for pastors, uh, but not to all believers. We might think, well, Paul is talking a lot about how a preacher or a missionary is supposed to minister the gospel, but I'm just an average Christian, so there's not, not much here for me to apply to my life. I think both of those are wrong ways of, of coming at this passage. And let me respond to those temptations with four quick reasons why I think this passage matters to us. Some of these reasons apply to any passage of Scripture, and some particular, particularly to this passage. Uh, the first reason why this passage should matter to us is because it's God's Word. <laughs> it's, in, it's in God's Word. Whether you see its relevance for you or not, this is God's Word. And when God speaks, we ought to listen. God thought it was necessary to put this in his word, and so we better think it's necessary for us to study. Second reason why I think this is important for us is that it, it gives us confidence in God's word and the gospel. When we see Paul stand firm against the scrutiny of those opposed to the gospel and prove himself to be credible, it builds our confidence in the gospel message. The third uh, reason that I think we want to um, say this passage matters for us is I think it, it will protect us against frauds. It will protect us against false teachers. As we learn what genuine ministers of the gospel look like, it will protect us from those false teachers. And also, 
Um, fourthly, it will teach us the proper way to be ministers of the gospel. It will teach us the proper way to be ministers of the gospel. We may, we may not be apostles or even preachers in the formal sense. Not all of us are, but we are all called out by God to be ministers of the gospel and proclaimers of the gospel. And thus we all need to apply to our own lives what this passage teaches concerning the attitude, motivation, and behavior of genuine ministers of the gospel. And I'm going to say more about this point uh, later on in, in the message. But right now, let's examine the flow of this passage, just so we um, can take it into context and see exactly what Paul is doing here. Paul seems to structure this passage around statements beginning with the word for and contrasting statements beginning with the word but. These these sections form his defense of his gospel ministry as he provides evidences to counter the accusations being hurled at him from enemies of the gospel in Thessalonica. Uh, We see this. If you look at verse one, it begins with the word for. And then when you look at verse two, it begins with the word. But if your translation doesn't have the word, but at the beginning of verse two, just know that it is there in the in the Greek um, and in the original um, uh, text. And then if you go to verse three, you'll see the word for at the beginning. And then verse four, you have the word but. And then verse five, you have the word for at the beginning. And then at the beginning of verse seven, you have the word but. This helps us break this passage, verses one through twelve, into into three sections. Verse one and two, verse three and four, and verses five through twelve. Verse one and two, we have evidence number one that Paul and his companions are not a fraud. And this evidence focuses on the circumstances of their ministry of the gospel. In verses 3 and 4, we have the second evidence that they're not frauds, and this focuses on the motivation that they had for ministering the gospel. And then the third evidence is found in verses 5 through 12, and that focuses on the manner or the method in which they ministered the gospel. Today we're just going to look at the first two evidences in verses 1 through 4. Let me go ahead and give you a a, a statement, um, the main idea statement, And you can go ahead and be writing that down if you're taking notes. And I will look a little bit more at this passage as a whole, and then we'll dive into uh, these particular verses. As a minister of the gospel, you can be bold in the face of opposition when you are motivated by fear of God rather than fear of people. As a minister of the gospel, you can be bold in the face of opposition when you are motivated by fear of God rather than fear of people. I want you to notice two themes that are intermingled throughout Paul's defense in verses 1 through 12, and then we'll direct our attention just on those first four verses. Um, I I want you to notice the repetition, one, of the phrase, you know. And I also want you to uh, notice the constant reference to God in these verses. Notice the repetition of the phrase, you know, and also the constant reference to God. Paul is, um, is inviting both the Thessalonian believers and God to testify to his credibility as a minister of the gospel. Notice first his emphasis on the Thessalonians' knowledge. If you look at verse 1, he says, you yourselves know. In verse 2, he says, as you know. In verse 5, he says, as you know. In verse 9, he says, you remember. In verse 10, he says, you are witnesses. And then in verse 11, he says, for you know. Now I want you to notice all the references to God in verses 1 through 12. He mentions God twice in verse 2, twice in verse 4. In verse 5, he says God is witness. In verse 8, he mentions God again. In verse 10, he says that God is a witness. And in verse 12, he mentions God for the eighth time in these 12 verses. 
Now, what's he doing here? You could think about it like a court of law. Remember, accusations are being made against him, and he's on the defense. He's on the defense. And he presents evidence to prove he's not a fraud. But just like any good defense, he's going to call witnesses to the stand. And his witnesses are the Thessalonian believers and God. If you think about it, it's hard to find better witnesses than that. On the one hand, he is saying that the Thessalonians themselves are witnesses. And that's like calling the jury to the stand as a witness. And it's really hard to argue against yourself. He's trying to convince the Thessalonians. And he's saying, hey, you already know this. You are witnesses yourself. On the other hand, he's calling God to the stand. He's calling God to the stand as a witness. And now, if, if Paul was pretending to be representing God, but was actually a fraud, the last thing he would want to do is bring God into the conversation, especially so frequently. I mean, either you are innocent or you are crazy if you call God to witness. And so these intermingled, intermingled themes running throughout Paul's defense in verses 1 through 12 are, one, an appeal to the Thessalonians as their own witness, and then also an appeal to God as witness. So it's safe to say Paul is confident that he and his companions are not frauds, and he has the witnesses to prove it to the Thessalonians. But he doesn't just have witnesses, he has evidence. And so let's dive into these four verses. Again, today we're just going to focus on verses 1 through 4, the first two evidences in this passage. Verse 1 and 2 is the first evidence, and here Paul focuses on the circumstances of their ministry of the gospel. Truth number one, evidence number one is this. Genuine gospel ministry is characterized by courage rather than fear of man. Genuine gospel ministry is characterized by courage. Or you could say boldness there. It's characterized by boldness. However you want to, want to say that. Maybe your translations perhaps say, use different words. Um, so you write how, how, you wanna, how you wanna phrase that. Genuine gospel ministry is characterized by courage or, or boldness rather than fear. Verse one says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. The, the phrase, for you yourselves know, brothers, um, that our coming to you was not in vain, that phrase, in vain, can have a variety of meanings, but I think the best meaning in this context is empty. Empty. He can mean empty in purpose, or empty in content, or empty in power and effectiveness. Perhaps it means a, a little bit of, of all. Against the accusations being made by his opponents, Paul says, brothers... Just think back to when we came to you. Would you say that it was in vain? Do you, would you say that it was empty, that our coming to you was empty? Would you say that we preached a powerless gospel in an aimless manner? Now, you could go back to chapter 1, verse 5, and see that that wasn't at all the case. You could go back to chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, and see that that wasn't at all the case. But I think this verse is mainly looking ahead to verse 2. Of chapter 2. The word but at the beginning of verse 2, again, it's there in the Greek, even if you don't see it in your translation, that helps us understand what Paul is pointing to as his evidence, his first evidence. Instead of coming to them in vain or empty, they came to the Thessalonians full of boldness in spite of having just endured incredible persecution in the previous town and in spite of facing much conflict there in Thessalonica. Verse 2 says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. 
So first, Paul reminds them of what they had already experienced in Philippi before they ever arrived in Thessalonica. You can read about their experience in the city of Philippi in Acts chapter 16. I just want to read a little bit of it to you. Um, Paul and Paul and Silas had had rescued a girl, a, a slave girl from um, from a, an evil spirit that lived within here, within her. And the text in Acts 16 says, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So when Paul says to the Thessalonians, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, he wasn't just blowing smoke. I mean, they had been arrested, they had been stripped of their clothes, they had been beaten, they had been thrown in prison, and they had been locked in the stocks. And he can say, as you know, because the Thessalonians, no doubt, had seen the healing wounds, wounds that there were, 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 were there but were beginning to heal on Paul and Silas as they limped into Thessalonica. But even in Thessalonica, it wasn't smooth sailing. Second here, Paul says, Paul and his companions remind them that even in Thessalonica, they declared the gospel. Notice what it says in verse two, in much conflict, in the midst of much conflict. You can read about this conflict in Acts chapter 17, verses one through nine. The word conflict can be used to refer to an athlete striving to reach the finish line. You see, what Paul is saying is gospel ministry is not for the faint of heart. It is difficult. It's not a walk in the park, but a group. We are proclaiming a gospel message, a message that is hated by Satan and is offensive to all who belong to him. Paul says to the Corinthians in his second letter to them that the gospel is an aroma of death to those who are perishing. And yet in the midst of much conflict, Right on the heels of an almost fatal beating, Paul and his companions declared the gospel with boldness or with courage. The word boldness here means the freedom to speak and is always used by Paul to refer to the preaching of the gospel. Although others would seek to bind them and limit their speech, Paul felt free to speak the gospel of God because his confidence was in God. He didn't have boldness in himself, but he had boldness in God. What's Paul's point here? Paul is saying, brothers, if I was a fraud, I wouldn't endure such persecution and hardship. If the message we proclaim and thus are coming to you was empty, we wouldn't be out here boldly preaching when it is so risky to do so. It wouldn't be worth it. But because this is the life changing gospel of God that comes with the power of salvation, we will endure and we will speak with boldness. Our courage in the face of suffering is evidence that we are not frauds. We wouldn't suffer in vain. We wouldn't suffer for emptiness. Before we move on, I want us to learn a few things from Paul's example here in verses one and two. I'm just going to list them very quickly. Number one, we must expect to face opposition and to suffer when we declare the gospel. That shouldn't surprise us. We should expect it. Number two, we must not shrink back when we 
face that opposition, but we must declare the gospel with boldness anyway. And number three, we must not try to be bold in and of ourselves. We need boldness that comes from God. When we proclaim God's gospel, we can proclaim it with a supernatural boldness. Even if we don't feel bold, we can proclaim it with the boldness that God gives us. So genuine gospel ministry is characterized by boldness rather than fear of man. Verses 1 and 2. That's Paul's first evidence. Now we move on to the second evidence, which we find in verses 3 and 4, where the first evidence focused on the circumstances surrounding the ministry, ministering of the gospel. The second evidence focuses on the motivation for ministering the gospel. Number two, truth number two for us today, genuine gospel ministry is characterized by obedience rather than dishonest motives. Genuine gospel ministry is characterized by obedience rather than dishonest motives. Again, we see this in verses three and four. There's a pattern here. If you, if you haven't picked up on it yet, you're going to see it. There's a pattern that Paul seems to use in this section, in this larger section, verses 1 through 12, where he speaks about what he didn't do and then what he did do. He moves from the negative to the positive, and we see it with the, the for and then the but that follows. In verse 1 he says, for we didn't come in vain. And, and in verse 2, he says, but we did have boldness. We didn't come in vain, but we did have boldness. Now in verse 3, he moves back to the negative, And then in verse 4, he'll go to the positive. Verse 3 states what their motivation was not. And verse 4 states what their motivation was. Verse 3 says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Their appeal was to believe the gospel. They came trying to persuade. They were making an appeal to believe the gospel of Jesus. Their appeal to the Thessalonians was to believe that Jesus was God in human flesh, that he was the only son sent from the Father who died for sin and rose up from the grave, who provides forgiveness from from sin and everlasting life to all who believes in him. Friend, today, if you have never believed in Jesus for salvation, then I appeal to you, Right now, today, to turn from your sin and believe in Jesus Christ to save you. Believe in him alone. That's the appeal that they were making to the Thessalonians. Appeal to believe the gospel. Then we have this phrase, spring forth. This appeal springs from something. Well, that's pointing us to their motivation. What what was motivating them to make this appeal to believe in Jesus? What was the motivation behind their coming to Thessalonica to persuade the people to believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Paul says it was not, it did not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. It's three things that it was not. Error. Error means error. It means inaccurate information. Impurity. Secondly, that could refer generally to to any type of wrong motive, but it could... maybe likely refer here specifically to sexual immorality, which was rampant and could have been motivating a lot of, of, of itinerant false teachers in that day and time. And third, he says it was not, it's not coming from an attempt to deceive, which is a phrase that it, it can be used to, to refer to baiting with a lure, like when you go fishing, put a lure on, on there to bait that fish. Paul is saying, 
here. We weren't motivated by false information. The gospel is real. We also were not motivated by impurity. Gaining opportunities for sexual promiscuous behavior was nowhere on our radar screen when we came to you. And third, we weren't motivated by baiting people with a false picture of the gospel. All three of these would have been dishonest motivations. They would have lacked integrity. I want to pause for just a moment to focus on this last one for just a moment. I think we have to be on guard, especially against this last wrong motivation. One writer gave two ways that Paul could have come to the Thessalonians with deception. One, he could have concealed the real cost of discipleship. But two, he could have offered fraudulent blessings. One, he could have concealed the real cost of discipleship. Listen, telling someone all they have to do is say a prayer to ask Jesus into their heart and then they get to go to heaven when they die, that's deceitful. Jesus calls us to take, calls us to take up our cross and follow Him. He calls us to submit every area of our lives to His Lordship. He never tells us just to say some words like a magic formula. He tells us to repent and believe, to die to ourselves, to lose our lives, to surrender control of our lives and live in complete dependence upon Him. We don't want to conceal the real cost of discipleship. But secondly, we also don't want to offer fraudulent blessings, telling someone that if they believe in Jesus, he will make their problems go away and he'll bless them with health and wealth and prosperity is deceitful as well. Jesus does not promise earthly health, wealth and prosperity. In fact, he promises trials and tribulations to those who follow him. While we do experience earthly blessings such as joy and peace and relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ, our blessings in Christ are not ultimately earthly, but are in the heavenly places, as Paul wrote in Ephesians. Concealing the real cost of discipleship and offering fraudulent blessings might get more people to raise their hands and say they want to be a Christian, but it will not increase the population of heaven. Deceiving people with a false gospel might allow us to claim to have lots of converts, but they won't have converted to Christianity. Apparently, Paul's opponents were telling the Thessalonians that Paul had dishonest intentions when he came to them. Paul says, no, we were not motivated by those things. And then he goes on in verse four to describe what their motivation was. Their appeal didn't spring from dishonesty, but from obedience. In verse 4, he says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. I want you to notice here the emphasis on God. Dishonest motivations um, are, are, are centered on the person. If I come to you with dishonest motivations then really I am centering everything on myself. But here, Paul centers their motivation on God. God has approved. God has entrusted. God is to be pleased. And God tests. Let's take each one of these in turn. First, God has approved Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy as messengers of the gospel there in verse 4. This is the same word that's used at the end of the verse that there is translated test, but it's the same word in Greek. They have been tested and found worthy, which, of course, we know their worthy worthiness really is a gift of grace from God. It is a God given privilege to be gospel ministers. But secondly, 
God has entrusted them with the gospel. They are stewards of this gospel. It's like if your friend left you with her pet while she went out of town, maybe on vacation. She entrusted you. You're now a steward of her of her pet. Of, let's say it's a cat, right? And so you, you, you have responsibility to take care of that pet, to take care of that cat while she's gone. Well, these men have been, who have been approved by God have a responsibility to take care of the gospel. They've been entrusted with it. They're stewards of it, which means that they are to use the gospel for its purpose, which means declaring it to others so others can be saved. But third, we see here that God, this emphasis on God, third is seen in that God is the one they are trying to please. Notice that they're not trying to please people. They're trying to please God. It's not that they lack concern for people, but they are not motivated by a desire to please people, but by a desire to please God. Here's the thing. When you are motivated by a desire to please people, then you're going to say things to make them happy and make them like you. We're going to talk more about that in verse five when we get to that next time, Lord willing. But the suffering these men have endured proves that they are motivated by something other than pleasing people. Their aim is to please God. But fourth, the fourth way we see God emphasized here in this verse, in verse four, is the fact that Paul says God is testing their hearts. God is the one who tests their hearts. They want to please God. They want to steward the gospel well. They want to live up to the approval God has given them because God is the one that they ultimately will answer to. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 27, that the Holy Spirit searches hearts. And he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul is saying here, we have been approved by God to deliver God's message and God will test our motives. And so we want to be found pleasing God. That is our motivation. We don't have selfish motives. We don't have dishonest motives. We have God centered motives. Paul's motivation isn't dishonesty, it's obedience. Obedience to the God who approved him to be a gospel witness. Obedience to the God who entrusted him with the gospel message. Obedience to the God who will test his heart to see whether or not he sought to please God or to please people. Genuine gospel ministry is characterized by obedience rather than dishonest motives. There's so much application we can draw from verse four in regards to gospel ministry. But let me just mention two points of application here. Number one, it should take uh, excuse me. It should make ministers of the gospel take their calling more seriously. Verse four should make ministers of the gospel take their calling more seriously. God is watching and God is testing He is testing our motives. He is testing whether or not we are genuinely seeking to please him or if we're simply trying to please people. And we must be vigilant against any evil desire to begin placing more weight on what people think of us rather than on what God thinks of us. Listen, there is an enormous responsibility that comes with being entrusted with the gospel. There is an enormous responsibility that comes with being entrusted with the gospel. God is watching. 
But secondly, the second point of application I want you to see is this. It should, while it should make us take it more seriously, it should also make ministers of the gospel feel free from the burden of trying to please people. While realizing that God tests our hearts should cause us to feel the weight of being entrusted with the gospel, it should also lift the burden that comes with trying to please people. Yes, God will test our hearts, but He is a good God who loves us and is gracious towards us, and He will provide everything we need to do what He has called us to do. Paul writes at the end of this letter, He who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. We can explain verse 4 this way. Paul was motivated not by fear of man, but by fear of God. Fear of God. That holy, reverent fear where you realize you are serving the God of creation and you will have to answer to Him one day. And here's the thing. When we are motivated by by fear of God, Rather than by fear of man, we will speak with boldness regardless of the suffering that comes our way. When we are motivated by the fear of man, excuse me, the fear of God rather than the fear of man, we will speak with boldness the gospel of Jesus regardless of the suffering that comes our way. Bold and obedient. That is the way of genuine gospel ministry. Bold in the face of opposition because of our fear of God. Our respect, our obedience toward God has destroyed any fear of man. But perhaps you say, what does that have to do with me? Think back to that fourth temptation that I mentioned at the beginning of this message. This seems like it has more to do with like pastors and missionaries that like do this all the time. And that's what God has called them to do. But not as much application for for me as just an average Christian. I believe Paul's defense of his own gospel ministry in Thessalonica provides us with instruction through example, the example that he is setting of how we, and I mean all Christians, are to engage in gospel ministry. There's a reason that I titled this passage, Genuine Gospel Ministry. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are gospel ministers. If you are in Christ, you are a gospel minister. Unfortunately, the term minister has become a term used for pastors. There's a term for pastors. Pastor. That's the term God has given us for those who have been called to be pastors. Now, every Christian has been called to hold the office of pastor, but every Christian is a minister of the gospel. To be a minister of the gospel simply means to serve others with the goal of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. That's what it means to be a minister of the gospel, to serve others with the goal of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy were defending their proclamation of the gospel, their gospel ministry. And listen, that is the calling of every Christian to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. So here's my challenge. Here's my charge to all of us. Let's proclaim the gospel. Let's declare it in circumstances where proclaiming the gospel could lead to difficult and suffering and shameful treatment. 
We proclaim the gospel in the boldness of God, not from dishonest motives, but from obedience to the God who has approved us to speak the gospel and entrusted us with the gospel and who will test our hearts to see what we did with the gospel. Let me ask you a question. Who needs to hear you declare the gospel to them? Who is it? To whom is God calling you to be a minister of the gospel? Whoever it is and wherever they are, let's be like Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Let's go and proclaim this gospel. Be bold and obedient. Be courageous. Be fearless when it comes to people. But let that fearlessness be rooted in a reverent fear of Almighty God as we seek to please Him and please Him alone. Be bold and be obedient. Be a genuine minister of the Gospel. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, help us to take this passage of Scripture and apply it to our lives. Father, You have called all of us to be ministers of of the gospel. Thank you for Paul's defense of his gospel ministry in Thessalonica. Father, we're not we're not finished with this passage. We still have his his third evidence and he he spends some time there on that third evidence and we'll we'll look at that uh the next time, Father, if you are willing. Uh but but Father, even in these first four verses here in chapter 2, Lord, there's so much that we can apply to our lives as ministers of the gospel. Father, help us to be bold as we proclaim the gospel. And at the same time, help it to be out of a motivation of, of, of obedience to you with submissive hearts. Father, we don't go bold and arrogant. We, don't, we, we, we go to people with the gospel bold and obedient. Humbled before you. Seeking to please you as our Lord. As our God. Father, help us to go. Help us to share the good news with those who need to hear. Father, you'll give us the strength to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.